Welcome to episode number 24 of the Marine Layer podcast with TJ Matthewson and Lyle Goldstein. On today's pod, we're joined by Mark Luino, an MOB content creator on YouTube. Really fun conversation with him. We have our three Mariners storylines of the last seven days. We have our minor league check-in segment. We have our another umpire of the week, our MLB wraparound. And as always, to close out the show, we have Speak Your Mind. Let's get it rolling. We welcome you into this edition of the Marine Layer Podcast on Tuesday, April 11th. While I did not miss watching stressful extra inning games, I'll say that much. Man, it, I'm I'm already done with it. I'm I'm already done watching Ghost Runners on second base again. The Mariners play a lot of extra inning games, and it's easy to forget over the course of an off season, and especially now that they're playing them this early and the two high pressure games they've lost. Yeah, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster of emotions this week, not just for the Mariners, but I'd say for fans too, when you sit through those games and you don't come away with a win. We're recording this here on Tuesday. The last two full games we have seen have both been extra inning games. Uh, we'll touch a little bit on the, the, the game in Cleveland on Sunday in one of our segments. It relates directly to it, but yeah, 12 innings... Um, the reason you put those runners on second base though, so these games can end after 10. So if you have to go three of those innings where you have to stress about a runner on second base, um, it's it's not fun. It really is not fun uh, at all. Let's get to our three Mariners storylines of the week. Okay, up first, our first storyline of the week, Lyle, the process finally looks different for Jared Kelnick. We talked about it all spring. But we watch him up there at the plate. We tell, Again, notice the word I said there, process. The process for what Jared Kelnick is looking for and computing for up there at the plate looks different than it did in seasons past. The biggest thing is he's not chasing pitches. I mean, I don't want to say he looks like a completely new player, but that's almost how you have to phrase it. Because the old Jared Kelnick, some of these breaking balls that he's seen early in the year, He's swinging at those because he's seen a lot of breaking balls low and out of the zone. He used to chase those and come up empty. Now, all of a sudden, he's laying off those. He's nearly in the 70th percentile in all of baseball in chase rate, meaning he's well above league average in not chasing pitches and swinging at the right balls in the zone, which is awesome because it's translated to a really, really good first couple of weeks for him. What did you think looking at waking up and looking at his baseball savant page today? Oh, it's awesome to see a bunch of bright red on his page in terms of X slug and hard hit rate. It's amazing. It's amazing. Some other things that stand out here, I mean, in terms of average exit velocity, he's hitting the ball hard. His quality of contact, which uh, is measured by expected weighted on base average. Again, weighted on base average differentiates a home run from a single and a walk, except etc. And the expected one is what you expect to based on your quality of contact. So that's how that's measured. His expected batting average, his slugging, his expected slugging is way up there. All the peripherals for what Jared Kelnick is doing well is still there. Now, there's still a slight caveat in a small sample size, like all of these small sample size numbers. He's still striking out a bit. He's still swinging and missing a little bit. But you think over the course of the season, most of these numbers will stabilize while some of the other ones might come down a little bit, we would expect the strikeout rate, Lyle, as well to come up. It shouldn't stay at 
above 30% for most of the year. Now, to set some expectations, strikeouts may very well always be a part of Jared Kelnick's game. There's a lot of players who have that in their game. Doesn't mean they can't be good players. Look at Eugenio Suarez. He struck out over 30% of the time last year. He had a great year. For Kelnick, if he can be around, I'll call it 25 to 27% in terms of his strikeout rate, but it's all from swinging at the right pitches, which he's been doing so far, then that's okay because that's going to come with a lot more quality of contact and a lot of hard hit baseballs, which we've seen early on in the year. So if he's just limiting some of those strikeouts, the Mariners and just about everybody, including Kelnick, will live with a 25-26% strikeout rate. I want to highlight a couple at bats that really showcase it, and both of them came from Sunday's game in Cleveland. While both you and I watched this at bat with him against Emmanuel Classe, I mean, he is fighting off he like Classe is a first of all a top five reliever in all of baseball. So that's just the start. And he throws a cutter that ranges from 96 to 102 miles an hour gutting in on his hands so what does he do i mean he doesn't uh he he manages to spoil all of the cutters in the strike zone i'm taking a look at it he threw four separate cutters on the inner quadrant of the plate that jared could have swung and missed at or he could have rolled over easily but no he spoiled those pitches well then class a threw him in an eight pitch at bat the seventh and eight pitches of the at bat while the count was two and two he threw him two sliders down in and in on his back foot and jared did not swing at either of them which is so impressive it because it has the same shape as a cut fastball but it has a little bit more depth to it and jared still did not swing at that pitch which might out of the hand at first look like a cutter on the inner half of the plate that he should swing at when instead it drops out of the strike zone towards his back foot uh, there in the ninth inning, both uh, both the seventh and eighth pitch of that at bat, both sliders missed and he ended up walking uh, in that ninth inning. The other one, Lyle, came in extra innings against uh, Eniel De Los Santos, a, the one where he mashed a double there in extra innings. He worked the count to 3-2. Found out he, so I, I I did try and sequence these at bats and and sort of wrote them wrote them uh, wrote them out a little bit. He did fall behind early in this at bat. He swung and missed at a changeup and watched a fastball. So he gets another changeup on pitch number three. He spoils it back, works the count all the way full on three two. He has a really good take on the sixth pitch of that bat, which just missed off the inside corner. One of his better takes he's had this year not chasing that pitch in on his wrists and breaking his bat. He fouls off a pretty good pitch of pitch number seven of the at-bat, which I thought he should have crossed. He did not. Um, And then pitch number eight of the at-bat, he nuked out to right center field, was this close to hitting a home run. So then he turns it around and the next day smacks a game-tying home run in the ninth inning uh, against the Cubs and Michael Fulmer on a similar pitch. The process of everything I just described for Jared Kelnick, we love it. It it is so nice to see that this is the kind of hitter we thought we were getting when Jared Kelnick was coming up. It's a small sample size, but we do like where he's at here in in terms of working counts and picking the right pitches to hit. I'd love to hear what he was doing in the offseason because his ability to read pitch shape and read spins night and day from 2022 to 2023. To go uh, to go and do what he did against Emmanuel Classe, who you called him a top five reliever. You can argue he's the best reliever in baseball. To spit on those sliders with two strikes, 
beyond impressive. I mean, he's swinging at those last year. The old Jared Kelnick probably whiffs at one of those pitches. It's it's night and day what he's done. It really is. And we talked about it time after time. If he's going to be this X factor, the Mariners ceiling all of a sudden gets that much higher. Now the bottom of the lineup is going to have to hit. That's a whole other topic, but he's doing everything they could ask of him right now. You know what? I'm, I'm going to go out and, and make this statement. There is no chance Jared Kelnick repeats what he did the last two years. I'm saying that bold and brash. Will he be an all-star? I can't guarantee that. I don't know what his 2023 is going to hold as a whole. He will not repeat what he did in his first two years in the big leagues. Not with this process. Okay, everyone listening, clip that. Clip it. Hold it over his head. I know a couple of people who might do that. But I'm, I'm honestly, I'm in the boat with you there. It, the process looks too good. And again, this isn't even guaranteeing that he's going to be a good player. It just means he's not going to be what he was the last two seasons. And the Mariners could really use it. Again, even if he's a 105 WRC plus guy, so he's 5% above league average, it's still night and day what they got from 2021 and 2022, especially if he's going to end up playing that quality defense that everybody knows he can play in the corners as well. Okay, let's get to our second storyline here. So a little bit on the downside here, TJ. The bullpen, as we know, has had its issues this week. They have blown a couple of games between Sunday in Cleveland, last Wednesday against the Angels. That game wasn't blown, but the lead was extended by L.A. And then on Monday against the Cubs in extra innings, they let the lead go again. Or they let the tie go. So it's been a shaky ride the last week for this Mariners bullpen, which is a little concerning. I come down when I'm trying to think of the right word to use for this. I mean... It's execution, right? That like that's what it is. And not just throwing pitches over the zone. I mean, you can think to Sunday where Penn Murphy and extra innings chucks a ball into center field trying to pick off the runner behind him and ends up just throwing it away right into center field. The throw again in Arizona they work on fifty to a hundred times, and then as soon as it matters in a game, he just throws it into center field just inexcusably on a mistake that you cannot be making once the regular season starts but it happens anyway. And I, I kind of want to focus on Matt Brash a little bit because he's the guy they they really need to rely on now to be that true, just filthy shutdown guy with Munoz out. I mean, he is the guy, right, in that bullpen with that sweeping slider that has gotten all of this hype. But when they needed him in the ninth inning on Sunday, his slider flattened out. He lost all command and he lost all feel for where the ball was going to the point where he's just spinning slider after slider that gets flatter and flatter and the break is shorter and shorter to the point where he left one, you know, middle, middle to Will Brennan and cracks it for a a game tying double that, yeah, probably should have been caught, but the execution from Matt Brash and and the bullpen throughout extra innings was also terrible, right? Like this team and the lineup is not built it, it like they're still kind of built to win close games theoretically right for for what they want they want to execute like they have the last two years in these close games and do everything right but your bullpen's not executing like that you can't do that so it just it just kind of disappointing to see here through the first week and a half you called brash's struggles i think your quote was that is straight out of the chris langan interview that we did isn't it because exactly yeah. what Chris talked about a few weeks ago with us. That's what happened. It yeah, it did. 
And the thing I was like, I was curious enough, right? So when we talk about a, an elite mash, Matt Brash slider, the thing moves like 12 to 15 inches, that like elite. Do you know how much his sliders were breaking to Will Brennan in that at bat? Uh, it looked like almost seven, nothing. Yeah, it was between seven inches and three inches, which brings Matt Brash's best pitch of all time back into the mundane circles. And that makes him not as good, right? Your pitches don't break and they don't move like they should. It doesn't work. And that's all part of Brash. You know, this is his first time with Munoz out. It's like you're tabbing him. Hey, you are the high leverage guy. And it just all falls apart for him, which is, it was really disappointing because you think of a guy like that to come in and shut down the game. That's the kind of stuff he had. And that's like, he started the inning by making Jose Ramirez look silly again. <laughs> and then it all falls falls apart, which is, again, disappointing for, for Matt Brash. You just expect more of it. And Brash isn't the only one who's struggling with execution. We can name a, a couple of guys here who ha- who have really struggled, but you know, Brash, probably most importantly, because he's the guy you rely on the most. If anybody needs a breather with Matt Brash, let me just read you this. Because his ERA and his whip have not been good so far. His ERA is 476 at time of recording. His whip is 176. His XERA, 204. FIP, 075. XFIP, 215. So his underlying numbers say, you know what? This is probably not going to last. He's going to revert to being the Matt Brash of 2022, and he is going to find his rhythm. It's just not happening yet, and it's unfortunate because these two extra inning games this week, the Mariners could have really used to get themselves on track, but Matt Brash himself should not be too off the rails for most of this year. Right, but you watched both those games. Like, there was no underlying numbers there to suggest he was successful in those outings. You Like, we watched him attempt to execute pitches, and put pitches in good spots, and he was not doing that, like, just flat out. No, not at all. And, again, I'm not defending his outings from the last couple of days. I just mean that long-term, this is probably going to get cleaned up. Yeah, it's unfortunate that he couldn't get those outs when he needed them. I just don't think this is going to linger all year. But they're going to need Matt Brash, because while we're on the subject of the bullpen, let's talk about Andres Munoz a little bit, because this week he hit the I.L., Mariner's best reliever, diagnosed with what they called a deltoid strain. Remember, he didn't have a full spring to get work in, like a full load of work in. So he's been feeling a little sore between outings, and the Mariners noticed. So they put him on the IL. They seem to think it's precautionary. They seem to be doing it as a way to try and get Munoz some extra rest and get him locked and loaded for the rest of the year because they're going to need him. And they were saying he just wasn't responding well to the point where he felt like he might need two to three days of rest in between all his start or all his outings. And they just couldn't give him that in the big leagues. So they thought maybe two weeks to give him rest could help him. But the other guys are going to need to step up while he's out. Let's hope that's all it takes is the the minimum amount of time on the, on the, on the IL. They can't, they cannot afford to have him out that much longer from again, what we've seen like this Mariners bullpen could still be good right? It could be. They're coming off back-to-back years of being a top five bullpen in baseball. It is hard to sustain that. It's even harder to sustain it when your top five reliever of baseball is out, right? If they're going to win these close games, they need the best guys in the bullpen, and Andres Munoz currently is not in that bullpen. Last thing before we move on, really quick. You're right. 
Sustaining an elite bullpen back-to-back years is incredibly hard. To sustain it three consecutive seasons is near impossible. So I'll ask you, what's a successful year for the Mariners' bullpen? Top 10, top 12? Probably top 10, I would say. Based on the guys you have in there and the stuff they throw, I would say top 10. Yeah. But are they a top 10 bullpen without Andres Munoz? No shot. Probably not. No. Right. Like he, he brings the bell curve, drags the bell curve into, into the top 10 range easily. Right. Cause you look after that, right. It, the, the depth is not quite there. And the guys that are truly elite and truly difference makers in that bullpen, it just kind of limits it a little bit. One guy, Lyle, as we move on to our third storyline, who could be a big difference in this bullpen that we've been very pleased about so far this year, Trevor got his, fastball cutter combination has been a really welcome surprise in this bullpen and or the early returns are I think Jerry knew what he was looking for and as of now Trevor got stuff looks like it can play and keep up in a major league bullpen I think I texted that to you this week when Gott had one of his really sharp outings I think my exact words were okay I see exactly why Jerry Depoto likes this guy was that about what I said? I think it, it was. It was pretty much. Uh, it was pretty much that. It, what's What's so bizarre already? He's already getting whiffs on thirty eight percent of his fastballs. That's pretty good for for the only pitches he is really getting whiffs on is cutter and his and his fastball. But the the pitches have been remarkably effective. the 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 profile of the pitch you you pick it out and the Jerry you know opens up his spreadsheet of what they look for and a release point and a spin rate and a velocity and a, and a movement. And he's like, boom, we got it. He's just sitting there waiting to be taken. And he got him. And he's been, again, he's been good. We, we obviously always love larger sample sizes of these kinds of things, but the stuff looks good. And the cutters already got a run value of negative two, just through six appearances, which that's really good. And the fastball, and you talk about the swings and misses, the movement on that fastball is absurd. I didn't realize that it moved the way it did before seeing him in big league action during the regular season. And the quality of contact he's allowing to Lyle, top 7% in baseball, which is what, what we want from relievers. That's what Paul Seawall does so well, is limits hard contact. And that's kind of the comp with him and Topa. The reason that Jerry acquired him is like, hey, look at that arm slot. We already have a guy like that in the bullpen who does pretty well why don't we try and mold these guys maybe a little bit after him but with a little bit more velocity as well the Mariners had elite bullpens back-to-back years in 2021 and 2022 here's the catch it wasn't the same guys outside of Seawall 2021 it was Casey Sadler Drew Steckenrider Paul Seawald. Seawald was another big factor in 22 but the two main bulldogs in that bullpen we're Andres Munoz and Matt Brash. You're going to need somebody to surprise you in 2023 if you want to continue to have a really good bullpen. Looks like it has a chance to beat Trevor Gott. Through just a few outings, he has looked razor sharp. So there's a, a lot of optimism for that, Lyle, for, for what it is. And it, and it might not just be Trevor Gott. There might be someone sitting in the minor leagues that is waiting to come up and, and really stamp a, a, a piece 
on this uh, on this bullpen and there could be a guy in this bullpen currently that was good last year that might not be remember like drew steckenrider in 2021 was awesome and then he comes back in 22 and he stunk and it, it didn't take the mariners really that long to move on because they knew that they knew what they were looking for in the bullpen they found it and the bullpen just kind of continued on without without a skip right? Without, without any sort of blip in the radar. So that's what I think they're thinking at this year. And, you know, got could be that guy or one of those guys. It, it could probably be multiple as well. Bullpens are fickle. And we're going to find out here pretty quickly in the next few weeks, who's really got it in terms of sustainability and who may start to fall off. It'll be something to watch. Was that a pun? Fickle? Who's really got it? Come on. Oh, Did no. Did you think but you could sneak good- that past? Honestly, that was unintentional, but good catch on that. That's a good catch. Well, I've I've got I've got good ears, you know. Right, now I'm ever I'm using I'm now done. ever using that word on this podcast is going to throw me for a loop because it's such a normal word to use in a sentence. But here is now on a Mariners podcast, I'm going to think about it now every time from here on out. Okay. We had a great interview this week with Giraffe Neck Mark. It was a really, really cool interview. Mark Luino, his full name. If you guys watch any baseball YouTube videos, you've probably seen him. He's wildly popular. He has over 250,000 subscribers on YouTube. He does a bunch of stuff on social media as well. And he's a Mets fan. He follows the Mariners. He follows all baseball teams, but he is at his core a Mets fan. It was pretty cool to get to have a conversation with them. Cause we've talked to a lot of Mariners people so far, all the interviews have been great, but it was cool to one, get an outsider's perspective and two, branch out a little bit in this interview to not just talk about the Mariners, but cover some broader topics as well. It's good to get a, like you said, a different outside perspective as well. And if you sit back and think about it, Lyle, like you said, we didn't talk about all the Mariners, correct. But there's a lot of inner, there's the, the two franchises, despite being in different leagues over the last five or so years, have a lot of interlocked storylines that we're able to touch on early in the interview. That's actually, you know, I thought was pretty entertaining. And it's also good just to get someone's perspective from a, a new media perspective, like a true, like our age content creator uh, whose full time job is to create content and cover Major League Baseball on his platform, which is YouTube videos. He does a podcast for the Mets as well, directly for the Mets, by the way, which I think is pretty cool. Um, that He's the host of Metsed Up. Uh, I believe it's on their website if you go look at it on their YouTube channel. Anyways, um, so it, it's really good to get like a perspective from somebody who is act, like he is the new digital media uh, of covering uh, of covering baseball and it's good to, it's really good to get her perspective we talked a little bit of wbc as well he got to spend a lot of time down there in miami watching a bunch of wbc baseball something we talked a little bit about this on this podcast and it's good to get his perspective on uh, on how that all rolled out it was awesome and he does a bunch of really cool youtube videos i'll throw this as a little bit of a teaser He did something for one of his YouTube videos that involved three separate major league baseball stadiums. And I'll leave it at that. It's it's one of his better videos. And we'll let you listen to what we talk about in the interview about it, because it's a really, really cool thing that he did involving three major league baseball stadiums that by the way, aren't all that close to each other. So with that, let's get to our interview with giraffe neck Mark. All right, 
we welcome on Mark Luino. You guys probably know him better as Giraffe Neck Mark, popular baseball YouTuber. He's also the host of the Mets Up podcast. Mark, we appreciate you taking some time to join us. We thought we'd just start with the hard-hitting stuff first. On a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you despise Paul Seawald? Oh, that is a 10. That is a big, fat 10. Uh, just the <laughs> fact that he was so godforsakingly horrible with the Mets. And then he goes to Seattle and he figures it out. I hate him. And then he gets, last year when you guys came to Queens, gets a couple of big outs, starts gesturing to the crowd. I mean, that guy gets under my skin. I never thought Paul Seawald would be that guy. But, yeah, I hate him. <laughs> Do you reflect all Mets fans, when you say it, are, are there Mets fans who are like, well, it, it is what it is, or or do you think that's a majority majority stance there? Uh, I think a majority of Mets fans probably hate him. Uh, like, I know my podcast co-host, uh, James, he's a big pitching guy, so he, like, respects what Paul Seawald's been able to do. He's like, listen, he completely changed. He turned around his career with, like, one pitch. I blame it on the Mets. I don't blame it on him. I'm like, no, I blame it on him. Like, I, I hate him. He didn't have the dog when he was here. Now, all of a sudden, he's this nasty pitcher. Um, but all jokes aside, I mean, happy for him but obviously whenever the Mets play you guys I really hope he blows it <laughs> I forget the celebration he did when they were in Queens last year but I did love the fact he broke out the the rock and the oh yeah it was this right so yeah uh, <laughs> earlier this weekend in the Cleveland series I mean he did he he broke out a new one he he uh he looked at Josh Naylor and rocked the baby a little bit which I which I really liked I'm glad he's he's branching out a little bit Listen, I mean, if he's starting to talk some trash, I think that's a good thing as a Mariners fan. Like, Paul Seawald was a dude who on the Mets might have had, like, less than zero confidence. So the fact that now he's he's able to talk some trash, I think that's really good. I think that's you should be excited. It's funny. I think that confidence just kind of grew for him over time as he started to pitch in a high relief role with the Mariners. Because when he was called up, funny story, it was the same day both Jared Kelnick and Logan Gilbert were called up. And he fired off a tweet that day. He was like, the Mariners are calling up all their young spry prospects today. And he's like 31, 32 years old. So he's probably thinking, oh, I'm just going to get a cup of coffee. And then, you know, he turns into a high leverage guy in the bullpen. So, yeah, I think it just kind of grew over time for him. Yeah, he's just... Really, I mean, he has turned his career around completely. Like, he's become a, a very solid reliever at at, at worst. Uh, you know, take away how much I dislike him. But you, you still got to respect that. He gets big outs now. Mariners fans, Mets fans, both off to, I would say, a slow-ish, sluggish start to the year. But if you go on and read both the Twitter verses of both those fan bases, would it be safe to say uh, season's over? Both sides? Yeah. I mean, uh, from the Mets fan side, I can speak on a little bit more. Uh, it's definitely a little uh, dark, a little overreactive, I think, to say the least. Like, yeah, 5-5 five and five isn't the start that we wanted, but also, like, we came out to such a hot start last year, and we ended the year so poorly. Like, what does it really matter? As long as you get to the playoffs, I think that gets lost, like, in the shuffle a lot, especially with, like, a relatively new format. Last year, we had more teams, and just the way that baseball is normally played, you think like, oh, the best team, you got to be the best team all year long. But like, in all honesty, you just got to make the playoffs and then hope you get hot like the Phillies did. Because we know they weren't one of the better teams, but they got hot at the right time. I mean, even like a little bit to the Mariners credit last year too. Like they got hot towards the end. They had that like good little run and like it eventually cooled off. But yeah, I, I think both sides probably maybe take a little gas off the pedal of the overreaction just because like it's so early they're both very good teams. I don't think either of these teams should be missing the playoffs. How like how much time do you have to carve out to watch teams besides Mets? Like your channel, your YouTube channel, Giraffe Neck Mark on YouTube. 
you know, you cover, you try and cover everybody. I mean, you're talking about, about all 30 teams in baseball. How much time are you able to carve out for teams besides the Mets to, you know, really focus on and really pay attention to like the Mariners three time zones away. They're, they're playing at 10 o'clock when you're probably trying to turn on a video for the next day and thinking of other things or maybe smartly sleeping <laughs> where, you know, how, how do, how do we, you know, how, where does that time go? Like, where does it, where does it come from? Where do you have time to like look into all this stuff? Yeah. I mean, it comes down to the fact that like, this is my full-time job. So like relatively speaking, not that I ha- like, I have to make time for it. Right. So like when the Mets are on, I'm all focused on the Mets. Like that's that's pretty much it. So like actually, a team like the Mariners, like I I keep a lot of tabs on the Padres too. Like even um, before they knocked us out of the playoffs, I was like very much like a a de facto like Padre fan. Um, so I like it works out where West Coast games start just as the Mets game ends. So I have the ability to actually watch both of those. I have a harder time honestly watching like Central team games. Like if if there's ever like a a, a blank in my knowledge, or if you're like seeing a quiz, like the teams I normally miss. I don't miss the coasts. I always miss the central because that that those are the games I just don't get to watch because they overlap with the Mets. But um, yeah, with the Mariners and stuff, I mean, for those of you who didn't know before we started this podcast, start supposed to start like an hour earlier and I fell asleep because <laughs> my schedule has been all over the place. So yeah, like my sleeping is very sporadic, especially because I try and make sure that I watch like those West Coast games and ends up making me go to bed pretty late most nights. So from a Mets perspective now, if we want to tie this to the Mariners, because th- this is a question that happens, especially with, you know, Jared Kelnick's season right now, he's getting his essentially third stint in the big leagues to to prove himself. And now we have a high profile Mets person on the podcast here with us. So if we turn the dial back to 2018 and we look at it from both sides, we're, we're going to put you on the Mets side of okay. the Jared Kelnick, Edwin Diaz trade again. Are you doing that trade? Oh, yeah, a million percent, a million percent, uh, which is crazy because I think I had that take when it happened. I think I liked the trade when it happened, but I, I was worried about Kalanick. Like, I was a huge fan of his. I mean, I still am. Uh, I, I, I thought he was going to be like a, I don't want to say generational type talent. I didn't have him there, but I thought he was going to be like a Christian Yelich-esque type player where, like, going to be really good. There's going to be some, like, super, super high years maybe. I don't know about MVP, but, like, all-star caliber outfielder for his career. So that part was scary to me. Uh, I also thought Robinson Cano was probably going to be a little more uh, effective than he had been for the Mets, and the steroids obviously kind of changed things. But looking back on it now, I mean, Edwin Diaz, outside of that 2019 and a little bit of 2020 year, has been that same closer he was in Seattle for that brief period of time that he was there. He's absolutely money. Like, yeah, the injury sucks now, but going back, that's one of the few things that I can say Brody Van Wagenen did right was actually going to make that move. Kelnick just hasn't performed. It's like a weird thing of he's probably still too talented. Like the trade probably still doesn't make any sense. But with the results that we've now seen, makes it a lot easier to be on the Mets side. It's interesting because I think a lot of people on the Mariners side probably would still do that trade too, I think. I mean, it is like Kelnick still has four years of control left, right? That's that's the reason you say yes. Like it's a slam dunk yes on both sides still. Even though over the course of the last three years, the trade has been, you know, thrown in a blender of of, of how it's viewed and, and and all the takes viewing going from every side. Yeah, the way that it works is like the Mets got rid of a guy, obviously, with massive upside. I mean, you guys know, like Kellenic has, has that potential. Maybe it's staggered a little bit or come back down to earth. But the massive potential upside there was for sure worth it for a closer that you guys 
probably weren't going to retain for that long. Like, I mean, we saw the contract he got. Mariners tend to not give that con- those contracts out, especially relievers don't really get those contracts from the Mariners. And then like a Robinson Cano, you got to get that money off the books too, which was huge. So it feels like a no-brainer from both sides. It may have not worked out maybe as well for the Mariners, especially because like some of the other pieces in that trade really didn't do much. But you had the opportunity to maybe get that outfielder that could have been like the you know all-star of the future in the corner for you guys. And he still could be. I'm just maybe maybe not as guaranteed now. I will say, I mean, this is just something to keep an eye on out in New York and out on the East Coast for your sake. I'm not saying he's going to come out and light the world on fire this year, but his approach looks like significantly better all of a sudden. Like he's not swinging and missing at all these change ups down and away or breaking balls out of the zone. Like he looks much more refined in these first 10 games or so. And he had the good spring. So that's a positive sign. But I will say it's funny how far the pendulum swung on takes with this trade between both fan bases. Cause for a while when it happened and Kelnick asserted himself into being a top five prospect and Diaz was struggling in 2019, all these Mariner fans were like, Oh my God, I can't believe we got away with this trade. We fleeced <laughs> this trade. Then all of a sudden the last couple of years, these Mets, all the Mets fans are like, thank God we got rid of Kelnick. Edwin Diaz is the best reliever in baseball. Like we don't need him. for us. Like, you know, it gets lost sometimes, right? Like trades are supposed to help both sides. It's not yes. supposed to be a fleecing. So from our sake, from our side, we're just like, can it be the Francisco Lindor, Jimenez, Rosario trade? <laughs> We're like, Jimenez and Rosario are both great players, but you guys got exactly what you wanted out of Lindor. Like, that's what we're hoping for. I'm glad you brought that up because I was actually going to bring up, like, in a perfect world, you'd want every trade to be like the Lindor trade, where both sides get what they want and both sides get players that are going to help them. And, like, that's, I think, the thing that also gets frustrating, like, in fandom just in general, or maybe, like, from the perspective of me who just, like, covers a lot of baseball. Is like people always want like someone got fleeced, someone got fleeced. Like no, it could just it can work out sometimes for both teams. It's not that one team doesn't have to get fleeced, the other team didn't get you know ripped off, whatever it is. Um, and like you said, Kelnick, there there have been improvements that may not show in the numbers yet, but he does look different right now, at least. I think the funniest part of that trade, maybe the most memorable part, if both sides come out of it and say yes, like we got what we wanted out of this trade, is how the trade started, where it's essentially. Jerry DePoto walking up to Brody and offering up Robinson Cano and say, Hey, you want a future Hall of Fame second baseman? And Brody's like, Huh? Well, that's awesome. And he turns out agent. to be Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he turns out to last what? He he didn't even last two years on the Mets. Uh he got I think he technically had three years because of the, you know, suspended year or whatnot. Right. But right. yeah, his his tenure was really short. I think this is the last year he's on the books for the Mets. I'm pretty sure we just give him his twenty million and then we never have to talk about Robinson Cano again. Honestly. I hadn't really thought about him until coming up on this podcast this year. <laughs> I mean, I will say when you have like a top five to seven second baseman in the game, and that actually might be underselling it in McNeil, like why yeah. would you, right? Which is kind of another thing I was hoping to ask you about is, so in the Mariners world, what a lot of people like to complain about, whether it be warranted or not, is they don't feel like ownership spends and they feel like they should be spending a lot more on their ball club than they do. How unreal is it to have Steve Cohen as your owner? Like, this is just like nothing we've ever seen before in baseball. And I think Mariners fans envy Mets fans a lot in that way. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. Like, all I've ever really wanted as a Mets fan, and this is like, I, I hate saying this out loud, but it's also true. It was like, I want to be the Yankees. I want to be the Yankees. I want to win. I want to spend money. I want to I want to be obnoxious. I want to be intolerable. I want to brag about how much we win. Like, that's all I want. When you When you are the best, you get to do that. 
So the fact that Steve Cohen's come in and we haven't won anything yet, but he's going out and getting Max Scherzer, Justin Verlander, Hall of Fame players. He's going out and giving Francisco Lindor $300 million. Like, it's like you get a contract and you get a contract and you get a contract. The dude pays me to do a podcast. Like that's, he's, he's spending money on everything. So <laughs> it's pretty unbelievable. Like I, I would highly recommend it to anybody. If you could, if you can have your owner spend a lot of money for your team, I would say, yeah, you should do it. It's, it's a great feeling. If we're going to talk about spending money, we want to circle back to the Mariners here eventually, but this needs to be asked. What about the guy who didn't end up getting signed? He, he agrees to a contract of what, about 2.30 Eastern sometime during December. Uh, Carlos Correa agrees to this enormous deal with the Mets. I'm literally about to fall asleep here on the West Coast when they agree to the deal. Uh, and it never it never ends up happening. So how does it feel to be like you are the, what, the second wheel essentially? Like we go yeah. for like your your second wheel, a third wheel. No, okay, so you were the maybe the third wheel, and then he goes back <laughs> to his original, his 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 original ex. That was like a unreal timeline, especially because like I had made a Carlos Correa Giants video, and the Mets like came in late. I, like if you remember too, like they came in late as like oh maybe it's the Mets, and then the Giants got him like hey congrats, like this is a great deal. I come home because I was like I was out in Texas, I was I was away. I come home. I go to sleep, like I wake up the next day to phone calls. If you, my dad's like, you haven't tweeted anything this morning. What's going on? Have you not seen him? Like, seen what? What are you talking about? He's like, Carlos Correa, signed with the Mets, like John Heyman saying it. I couldn't believe it. And then, like, a little fun inside scoop. Like, when we, on the podcast, we, like, record an episode for Correa. We just couldn't put it out until anything was official. That never ended up happening. So there was, like, an entire episode recorded about our reactions to Carlos Correa. That's, like, just completely exists, like, in the, the netherworld of, like, We'll never, never see the light of day. So my, my podcast goes, host kind of said the best when we recorded that fake episode was it still doesn't feel real to me. And until it's like officially announced, it won't feel real. And we now know it's not. Uh, it never felt like we were like necessarily like the second, second team. It was just like, okay, you know what? You ended up coming to the right team. You made the right decision. And then the medicals came back and they were like, mm, can't take this guy right now. This wouldn't be smart for the long term, which also sucks because I'm a fan of Carlos Correa. Like, I wanted him on the team. We'll just never see an offseason like that ever again, where a player, again, has stops at three separate teams. He signs contracts reportedly with three separate teams, only to have two fall through. Like, I, like we're never going to see a saga like that again. No, I honestly can't even compare it. The only thing that feels comparable, but it's it's not, was when, like, DeAndre Jordan in the NBA, like, remember when they, like, kept him hostage yeah. from the other uh -huh. team? Like, you're not leaving until you sign this contract. Like, that was pretty crazy, but that wasn't even close to this. No, not at all, which is, again, like, I feel for you as a Met fan. I mean, I know they're already We're spending right. a lot We're of money. Right. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, to begin with, but I know if that had been us going through the ringer that way, I would have just been crushed to be a part of that saga. So I get it. Believe me. Yeah. Um, Carlos Correa would have looked good at shortstop for the Mariners. Hey, we, so we said the, the thing is we've, that, that subject has come up like multiple times over the off season. We've gotten to talk to, uh, talk to, I think we did talk to Ryan Davis about this, mm -hmm. uh, who covers the Mariners for the Seattle times about like, he agreed, like once it got down to six years with the twins, I'm like, how are not, how like, how are the other 28 teams in baseball not jumping on this when when it, yeah. when a premier shortstop gets down to six years? Because Jerry Depoto's thing is not signing guys to 10-year contracts into their 40s. Well, if you yeah. sign a 28-year-old to a six-year contract, those check marks don't hit. So you think like the, the, you don't lose anything. 
but they must have just hated his medicals. I'm gonna guess they they probably they, you know they probably got enough enough bad uh, bad juice juju from that. Yeah, a couple teams pass on a guy and they're like, maybe there's something wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just, just maybe, just maybe. You know, getting into your channel a little bit, Mark, and now tying this back to the Mariners a little bit, a guy you like to talk about, and basically most of the baseball world likes to talk about a lot these days, is Julio. Julio Rodriguez. I know you're a big fan of him. You've followed him since he was in the minors. It's kind of crazy to us being Mariners fans and growing up in an age where we lived through 21 years without a postseason appearance and not a whole lot of stars that came through, where now there's this young 22-year-old universal star that not just Mariner fans love, but baseball fans seem to love, and you seem to really be a fan of him. I mean, what makes him, from a more national perspective, so easy to like and root for? I think he just got kind of like that it factor. I got to meet him when he was 18 years old at spring training. I think that was like 2019. I think he'd be 18, maybe. Uh, I don't know how the timeline works necessarily, but got to meet him, talk to him. And that was like when he was just kind of starting to get some attention as like a prospect. And I was like, this two, this dude's going to be something like, and I, I was like, I want to talk to him. And they're like, sure. And he wants to talk to you. Like he wants to practice his English. Like he wants, he was like preparing himself. And the, the conversation we had was incredible. I remember being like, wow, you speak like really good English. He's like, oh yeah. From like a young age, my parents like sent me to school and they're like, you're speaking English. Stop speaking Spanish at school, speak English at school. Like that's what we want. It's almost like they knew like you're going to be a star. I think he's just like, he's really cool. He seems to really understand like what his role is and what he's trying to do. He has fun on the field and he's really, really good, which helps a lot with all that other stuff on top of it. Like we're in a, really good spot just in baseball in general where a lot of like the great young stars are also like great off the field or like really care about like building their brand off the field and I think J-Rod's one of those guys too where he's not just like playing the game and like all right you'll see me tomorrow like he's like on social media he has a YouTube channel he's partnering up with companies like he's really marketable and I think that's something that's gonna I think attract a lot of people to be a fan of his as well. So you've gotten to talk to some prospects then. So like, where does that stack up for like, for a guy who's that young, that is that you said it's more common now, but like on a scale, is that what, like 20% meaning more common is that, you know, 30% of the guys could, could handle, handle that when they're 18. He was the youngest player. Uh, I think actually, yeah, I think he's, I talked to him when he was 18. I think I talked to Francisco Alvarez when he was 18 and Ronnie Mauricio when they were 18. I haven't really talked to many, like, 18-year-olds just because, like, weirdly with COVID and my schedule, it just hasn't worked. But those guys have all kind of been different. Like, Julio was extremely well-spoken, extremely confident. Only one who did know English as well. Like, not that that's a a slight on any of the other guys, but he was, like, very, very much like, I'm going to know English. Don't help me in this interview. I'm going to figure it out myself. Um, Francisco Alvarez had, like, all the confidence in the world, like, even more than Julio Rodriguez. But didn't know English and like was a little hesitant necessarily to say some things. And Ryan Mauricio was really shy, but Julio was like, I have strong answers. I know what I'm going to say. I'm doing it in English, which is like very big for, you know, building your brand. Of course, the English speaking players tend to get a lot more contracts, money and and brand deals. Uh, It just seems like he was a little more ready to be like a star. Like it's like he knew. Based off that, then what other guys really stood out to you when you've gotten to talk to them? Because you, again, you get to go, to, you know, try and cover all these guys. So you get yeah. to you get to broaden your lens a little bit more than we do. Who has really stood out? Um, I would say, like, I've probably had 
in terms of like my best interviews, it's a lot of them happen with the Mets. Um, I got to talk to Scherzer and Verlander, which was pretty unbelievable. Like Scherzer thinks about the game of baseball differently than most guys I've ever spoken to. He's just like his brain works different. This was last year before the pitch clock was introduced. And he already had his plan for what he was going to do. He's like, I'm going to weaponize this. To hear Max Scherzer say he's going to weaponize anything, let alone it be something that's supposed to be a disadvantage for him, uh, was was pretty crazy. And it seemed like he could talk with us for another hour. He just had the game to start. And then Justin Verlander, you have like incredibly focused, like very polished, very refined, um, but like not bad answers, like still a great interview. Like those two, to me, will probably go up there as like some of my favorites, especially because we're talking about Hall of Fame pitchers as well. Yeah, which is, I mean, that's got to be unbelievable to be able to talk to two guys like that. And especially with the way you were talking about how Scherzer started to figure out how to use the pitch clock in advance. And obviously he's a super intense guy, but the fact, you know, the fact he gave you a super cool interview. I mean, that's got to be, that's got to be awesome for you, but also for your listeners and people listening. I mean, it's got to be such a little foot in the door to get to hear that stuff, right? Literally never, th- like the way that it happened was so like last minute, we just like went up to him. Hey, can we get an interview? He's like, sure. Give me like five minutes. I got to do my running, which we thought was like, no, like I'll, I'll not today. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden he like comes over. He's like, okay, let's do it. We're like, oh my God. Okay. Like let's scramble. And I think the funniest thing that happened was before the cameras even started rolling. He was like, all right, let's do this. We're like, great. And he introduced himself. He's like, Hey Max. I'm like, well, we know who you are. Like <laughs> you don't have to introduce <laughs> yourself. Let me- I'm Mark. You don't know me. I know you. <laughs> Uh-huh. Exactly. Which yeah, which is which is just so awesome. You know, getting into your channel a little bit here too, because you talked about this is your full-time job now. I mean, making videos, creating content, watching these games. So first off, I guess I'm just curious, how long did it take for it to become a full-time job? Because I know you've been at it for a while now. Yeah. So I, I went full time in 2019, right after I graduated. Uh just ended up that my channel started doing really well uh right as I was graduating college. So that worked out perfectly. But I have been making just YouTube videos in general since like 2012, 2013. Started off in the FIFA community of all places, which is very strange and not like baseball at all. Um, But I was making baseball videos probably since like 2015. I think it was like MLB The Show 14, 15 range was when I really started making videos. But I had never really taken it seriously. Like I always wanted to do well, but I had classes. I had friends. I was doing other things. That 2019 year was like, I'm going to go for this. I don't want to get a real job. I want to do this. Let's see how well I can do it. And luckily enough, it took off. And, you know, for this is my fifth season now of being full time doing baseball content solely, which is pretty awesome. And I wouldn't trade it or trade it for anything. What's the biggest thing to uh, or let's say the biggest marker for success then when you're when you're attempting to to create content and find new ways to engage people? Not to be like a like lame, but it's it really does depend on the person. Like some people don't care about like making money, right? Like they're like, I just I want people to watch my content, I want to be heard, or I want to build a Twitter following. Like I want people to care about what I say. For me, um, it was really like I, I figured out like success. The number that I was always chasing was a hundred thousand subscribers. Um, you get the plaque, which was really cool to me. That was something I had always wanted was a hundred K subscriber plaque. And when when I knew that I reached that point and like the way that I did it, I was like, okay, I think I know what I'm doing now, which means I can do this now. Like this can be my job. So I wouldn't say like I was chasing the money. I was more chasing like that, that milestone, knowing that everything else would come along with it and I'd be able to continue to do it. Did you go to school thinking you were going to be a traditional media sense? For example, Lyle and I both went to ASU. We both 
want or I guess we went to school wanting to be broadcasters. I would say there's still we still decently do. We do a podcast, so that's probably half the work right there of doing that. But when when you went to school, is this like an idea? Hey, I I, do, I might want to go cover sports. Not like I, even though I make YouTube videos. May hey, I want to go be a writer. Hey, maybe I'm going to go be a broadcaster somewhere. Something like that. I no, I wouldn't say it was. I originally like when I went to college, I was doing like my own like business for a while. That was doing really well, so that was like something that I was doing. But um, I was originally a business major. My grades were god awful. I wasn't going to class. I wasn't. I wasn't doing anything. I was preoccupied with some other stuff um, with my business that I was running, and I got kicked out of the business school. So uh, here I am as like 21 year old. I have no major. I'm like I have no. I don't know what classes to take. I just wasted like an entire year. What am I going to go into? I went into the advertising major, uh, which was in like the journalism school of all places, which is bizarre. And I was like, all right, I'm just gonna, I'm going to make like advertising. Like I I like Photoshop. I like the idea of like advertising is a little bit of game you're chasing impressions and stuff like that i thought that was cool and i was like interviewing for jobs like before i graduated like i was interviewing in charlotte and interviewing with companies in atlanta because i went to the university of south carolina and i was like very much like okay i gotta figure out what i'm doing then the channel took off i'm like oh this is great like it kind of all came from a spot of like the, the baseball channel started because i wasn't playing baseball and i desperately needed some outlet because I still was crazy obsessed with it, but none of my friends were like me with baseball. Like they, they like their teams, but they're not watching every single game. They're not talking about every other team. Like this was my way to kind of find like a community of people, which was originally how it kind of started. Um, and then I was like, Oh, okay. Like we got something here. Let's, let's try and make this a real thing. Like I said, kind of my, my 2019 last year of college. So how long did it take you to learn all the video editing? Because it doesn't sound like that's really what you focused on in college in terms of your major with anything sports media related. It sounds like you probably learned a lot of that on your own. So how much practice and and consistency did that take? Yeah, uh, I if I look at my first videos that I was making, they were pretty horrible. And I think anybody who does YouTube would agree. Like you look back at your old stuff, you're like, wow, I can't believe I put this on the Internet. This is terrible. but it's something that like you just kind of get better with as you go and you learn your little tricks. You learn like your, your shortcuts that make things faster or, you know, a certain way that your editing style works. I don't really know a time of when I felt like I became good at editing. Cause I think I always thought I was, but it was one of those things where I was like, I need to learn how to do this in order to make YouTube videos. So I kind of just threw myself into the fire and I was like, I'll watch a YouTube tutorial. If there's a question on something I don't know how to do, like I knew the basics and the basics carry me far far enough until I needed to learn something new. How big of a part do you think this content creation game is in the future of how baseball and sports are covered? Because this is very different from how sports have been covered the last twenty years, right? It's it's you know it's traditional written and and broadcast stuff. But this you know this is a kind of last uh, you know YouTube's decently old, but I would say in the last seven eight years there's been significantly more of this so like where do you see like how how big of a chunk is this opposed to what has always been yeah i mean i think it's i think at least in baseball it's still relatively small i mean you can look at like the the top creators let's say in the baseball world and there's a lot there's a lot of guys who make baseball videos but there's like a clear separation in like the sub count which is like kind of lame to say because like everyone still gets great views and that's all that really matters so I think like it's still a very much a growing community. It's like almost like in like the baby steps still. So I love that I'm, I feel like I'm in early at least. 
but I think like the future is this is what people are going to want. Like I'm sure we all grew up watching SportsCenter, right? And I'm sure we can probably count on our two hands how many times we've watched SportsCenter in the last year. Like it's just, it's not good content, especially if you're a baseball fan. They don't talk about baseball at all. So it's almost like you're getting like that Netflix Hulu-ish feel of, I want to watch this. I can go to this guy's channel and, and find this where that doesn't really exist in sports. So I think that's kind of like the future of when I want to watch Mets content or if I want to watch baseball content, I can just go search it up on YouTube or whatever platform it's going to be and I'll be able to find it. You know, it's it's funny you say that about how sports content has grown and, and your example about watching SportsCenter because you're right. Like, I don't watch SportsCenter anymore. I grew up with it. In fact, you know, those morning shows specifically, like the example I always think of is, if you told the guys on first take, you know, we need you to break down Corbin Burns' start last night for the Brewers. Yeah. Like, would they look at their producers like, did you just speak another language? They would be like, I mean, we've even seen, like, when they talk about Shohei Otani, who's like a mega superstar. They have, <laughs> or Mike Trout, like, they still have, like, the worst takes in the world ever. Like, Chris Russo was talking about how, like, Mike Trout stinks. <laughs> this is the best player in baseball. He struck out. It's like, dude, like, I know you're probably doing this to get a rise out of everybody and for clicks, but... This is why no baseball fans watch this stuff because nobody wants to hear stupid takes like that. Right. It's just it's just so funny because like they have the they have the baseball guy and still mess it up still and it's so funny. Well, speaking of uh, Mark, where the where this what that subject you talked about of what they talked about on first tape, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the WBC. We've talked about it a little bit. Uh, during the offseason on this podcast, because there's only so much Mariners content to fill, <laughs> the WBC was really awesome, and you got to spend some time there. So you could give us a firsthand account of really just how that environment was and how much the people really, really care about the this sport outside of the United States. It really is. It's it's a spectacular event, isn't it? Oh, it makes you feel like we don't actually care about the sport at all. Like watching like every other country's fan bases compared to ours, I'm like, oh, we got a lot of cashing up to do. Like, it does not mean the same to us as it does to them. Like, we almost take it for granted, I think, in a way. Like, Team USA fans, I, I'm one of them because, you know, Italy and Greece don't really have great teams. Um, but they're definitely, like, lacking a little bit. Like, the all the Latin fans are unbelievable. I think I tweeted out, I'm like, best, best fans in the world. Like, the Latin American fans are unbelievable. Venezuela, Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, that's what I got to see. All of them brought the heat. Like, Mexico fans. Like, I... I wasn't sure what Mexico's crowd would be like because, like, realistically, like, soccer is their sport. They were, like, super loud and super excited about, like, Mexican baseball, which is awesome. The Japanese fans were amazing. And what was really cool, too, that I loved about the World Baseball Classic and, like, all the fans, I feel like you go to, like, sporting events in America normally and you, like, you see some fights, right? Like, a drunk fan says something about your favorite team and someone takes a swing. Then a fight breaks out. I this is a little anecdotal, but I didn't see a single fight in the two weeks that I went to all the World Baseball Classic games. Like every single fan base was unbelievably friendly. You were rooting for another team. They didn't care. Like I had a friend who was rooting for Venezuela. He was Venezuelan. After every game, after Venezuela would beat the teams, he'd go up to someone like, hey, can I take a picture with you? And they're like, oh, this is great. Like I'm meeting a Venezuelan fan. You're taking a picture with Dominican. It just it made baseball feel like a really, really large but tight community which I think is something that we miss out on sometimes with like the way that major league baseball works. Okay. I'm actually really glad you say that. Cause I feel like there's a lot of Mets fans out there that after the Edwin Diaz injury, they were like, cancel this entire tournament where it sounds like you, like, I'm not saying you should be happy about that injury, yeah. but it seems like you have a pretty cool perspective of like, this event is awesome. 
it's so much bigger. Like it's such a cliche, but like it's bigger than baseball. Like the the these players care so much. Like Edwin Diaz, I'm sure is going to play in the next one too. Like even with this freak injury that happened, because like this means so much. This is to a lot of them like more important than the World Series is like playing for your country, winning the World Baseball Classic out in Japan. Like for Samurai Japan, this is the most important thing. Like everything that you do in your baseball career is to hopefully one day play for Samurai Japan and win the World Baseball Classic or win an Olympic gold medal. So seeing that pride that they have for that, like it, it really does bring a different feel to the game. And the Edwin Diaz injury was such a freak accident. Like that would have happened on the mound in spring training. Like to me, to blame the World Baseball Classic for that, you probably have to be a little stupid. Like you have to just be a little angry or a little overreactive. And that's that's something that's that's the nature of the beast with you know fandom and sports. But this this tournament specifically, I think is going to do more for baseball than anything that's been done in the last few years. What If you're going to pick uh, a place that you would want to go watch a game in future World Baseball Classic host sites, where are you going? I'm going to Japan. Um, my One of my friends is in agree. Japan for, <laughs> for all the group games. Uh, he's Japanese, so he was able to go out there. And he sent us videos and pictures. And I've, I've now done like the, the Miami, the Latin American. I would want to do it again. Like I, I definitely will be back. But I'm trying to find any way possible to get to Japan for the next World Baseball Classic and see it there because it is different, as weird as it sounds. It doesn't make any sense, but it is a different vibe, and uh, it looks like just an absolute blast. The image of the World Baseball Classic that probably stood out to me the most was in Japan after Otani hit that home run, and there's the video of fans legit passing that baseball around one by one so everybody can see it. And then it goes back to the usher to, I assume, give back to Otani. I mean, that happened in the U.S. First person that touches that ball, they're out of there, and they're selling it on eBay for as much as they can get. Dude, it's like Masataka Yoshida hit his first home run uh, over the Green Monster. I think a little kid caught it. But, like, he's not giving him the ball still, I think. I don't think he's giving him the ball yet. Like, the way, like, that other countries watch baseball, react to baseball, like even the World Baseball Classic, I think it's really eye-opening, and I hope that a lot of American fans like see how important it is to everyone else because I think we sometimes take for advantage that like we get to watch the best players in the world play in our country for our teams every single day during the year. But like a team like Cuba got to come to America, and Cubans got to see their national team play on American soil for the first time in a very long time, and it meant a lot to a lot of these people. Like This, this is a huge, huge deal, and the World Baseball Classic is so awesome. The thing I I thought about during this World Baseball Classic is I didn't realize how like just how different the environment of baseball is in these different countries opposed to the U.S. until this tournament. If for some reason the last time the WBC was played back in 17, like I didn't pick up on it. Like it just didn't it didn't click for me. But I'm watching this tournament. I'm I, I, I can picture it clearly in my mind. United States is playing at Chase Field against Team Mexico. And it's a road game, essentially. Yeah. I mean, it is probably 70, 30 Mexico fans in there. And you you know, like, they're rowdy. They're having a great time. And I'm just seeing I'm like, wow. I'm like, you know, like, you know everyone here in America, most baseball fans, you know, they probably say, yeah, whatever. Like, I'd, I'd rather go watch a movie or something like that. And it just yeah. it was so eye-opening. It's like, like, what, like the, I feel like our priorities aren't, aren't necessarily straight, especially if we want to view this the way the World Cup is viewed. Like, like there need there need there needs to be steps changed here. I think, and maybe this isn't fair, but I, I don't know. This would be my little call. Like, I think USA baseball, like in general, I think just has to maybe do a little bit of a better job. Um, like, I, I'm glad they got some big name players finally. Um, like Mike Trout playing is huge, so big, and I think it 
then attracts other players. We need to get some pitchers in there too next time. Um, yeah. And maybe it's just like the the style that we play too. Like Americans seem to that the guys on that team at least were like all sort of veterans who have accomplished like great things in their career already. And it felt like this was like another thing that they wanted. Like I, there's no doubt in my mind, but there wasn't like that emotion that you see from these other countries or like where they, they live and die. Like I want to win this game. When I hit a home run, I'm going crazy. Cause I can't believe I'm doing this for my country where team USA was more like pumped. I don't know. It's it, like you said, you don't realize it until you can compare it. And it's a hard thing to explain, but I, I hope for the next one, at least team USA and the, and our fans step it up a little bit. Cause I'd love, I'd love to have like more atmosphere for the USA games too. You know what they need to do? They need to, there should not be a first round game on U.S. soil. Go make USA go travel somewhere else. So they like, you want to carry, like, go care. Like, go actually care. Go force yourself out there. Yeah, they'll definitely not do that, but I don't disagree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I will say, we're talking about the WBC here, some international travel. You want to get out to Japan eventually. Yeah, I, w- I did want to ask you about one of your videos that was involving domestic travel. And I think it was one of the cooler baseball videos I've seen is last September, you did a video where you went to three baseball stadiums in 24 hours. Now on the East Coast, maybe that seems a little more possible because there's so many stadiums close together, but that's not what you did. You went from nope. New York to LA. You saw Albert Pujols at his 700th, 700th home run in person. You fly back to New York, go to a Yankee game, and then take the train to go see the Orioles at Camden Yards. I mean, how much planning does that take? Um, A lot. A lot of planning. Uh, and I honestly probably didn't plan it as much as I needed to. Uh, there was a lot of stuff where I was like, oh, man. Like, I, like I, in that video, I mentioned how we, like, missed the subway, and I was, like, genuinely concerned, like, missing the train. And that was, like, a real thing. That wasn't even, like put in there for YouTube, like dramatic purposes. We got to the train station with like a minute before it took off. And if I miss that video's dead, video's over. And I just wasted like all this time, all this money on it. Um, But yeah, I got got the idea from a guy uh, named Jesser. He's a big like basketball YouTuber. And I saw him do it for basketball games. Like, Oh, I'm totally doing this for baseball. Like I wish, I wish I came up with this idea originally, but he came up with it. I did it for baseball. And I was like, all right, so I need to hire like a, a film guy. Like someone's got to film me because I've, I've tried vlogging. I'm horrible at it. When I go to the games, I end up just watching and I forget to pull out my camera and record my reactions and all that stuff. And then I was like, all right, then I have to buy him plane tickets. I have to get his hotels. I have to book the travel. I have to make sure I have like a time schedule. I had to plan out shots that I wanted in the stadium, food that I wanted to eat. Like it doesn't sound like I don't want to make it sound like I'm complaining because I this is awesome. If this is my job figuring out how to go to three games in 24 hours, incredibly excited but yeah a ton of planning went into this and i still think i was probably underprepared did you always plan on going to a west coast stadium like yes because it could just be very easy to say hey i'm gonna go fenway train new york train dc or baltimore done boom easy 100 percent. right I, i didn't want i didn't want anybody to have any sort of comment to me of like, no, you went, you went easy. Like, like you said, there was a weekend where the Mets and the Yankees both played in New York. I could have literally stayed in this stayed in my apartment, like for an entire day, not spent on anything, but I wanted to make sure that like this trip was memorable. Like when you're making the YouTube video, you need people to be like, wow, that's crazy. So that they continue to watch. How do I do that? Go to LA, hop on the red eye, get to New York. And then we can maybe take a, a shorter trip down to Baltimore like that. I mean, that video is cool in itself, but the fact you saw Albert Pujols hit 700, I mean, icing on the cake, right? Dude, crazy. Like, that 
date we had I had circled like for a month plus. I was like, this is I think the best time it's gonna work out. The schedule works with everything, travel, flights, like all this makes sense. And then all of a sudden Albert Pujols starts hitting more home runs. I'm like, wow, hold on a second. Like we might have the 700 home run game. I think he like cooled off a little bit, came into the game with 698 because he needed to hit two. And like when we're filming and everything, we're recording with my friend that also came with me. We're like, oh, he's going to do it today. Like just for the purpose of the video, get people excited. He hit the first one. We looked at each other like, oh my God, like he, he really might mess around and hit 700 tonight. Next at bat, bang. And I was like, this is, I, I saw baseball history. That's like one of the coolest moments I've ever experienced. I haven't really been at many big events. As a Mets fan, there hasn't been many, and that's most of the games I go to. So to be able to see Albert Pujols, one of the best players of all time, hit 700 home runs, it's only been done by like four or five other guys, made the video that much better. And if only Aaron Judge could have hit 62 or 61 that day, because that he literally was one behind tying the record. So I was like, man, if I could see 700 and him tie the record – in the span of like 12 hours, I'm going to be on the national news. Nobody else in the world is going to be able to say I was at both of those games. You should have just gone and bought a lottery ticket if that was the case. Yeah. Oh, if it, I, I, we had a part like in the video that if he did hit it, I said I was going to go buy a lottery ticket. It's just, he didn't. So I got cut out. <laughs> <laughs> Man, it's 61 and 700. I mean, that would have been the baseball gods just throwing you all the luck in the world, right? Like pointing everything your direction. He came so close to, he hit one like right to the warning track. I remember it got in the air. I'm like, no way it's happening. And then it got caught. I'm like, they couldn't have given him one of those bouncy balls that they gave him all, all August and September. I would have really appreciated that for the video. Okay. As we start to kind of wrap this up a little bit, maybe we can tie this back to our two fan bases a little bit with the Mariners and the Mets. But I mean, you do a lot of Mets videos. I mean, you do a lot of videos on baseball in, in general on all 30 teams, but since we're still early enough in the year here, I'll ask you, for both sides, what do you see the outlook being for both teams, the Mariners and the Mets? Yeah, I, I think they're both going to be fine. I think they both make the playoffs. I think the Mariners, like the Mets, I think, have a legitimate shot at being like a World Series contender. I don't think the Mariners are necessarily there right now, the way that I see this roster um, being. like I, I know Mariners fans love J.P. Crawford. I don't know where you guys stand, but I just I don't think you can really have a World Series team with J.P. Crawford at shortstop. Uh, I think they've given him enough time. He's kind of shown that he's just fine. And you know what? If you have an elite DH and an elite, like fill the holes of left field DH, maybe like, maybe it works. But to me, you, you need to probably find a shortstop. I, the problem is I don't know who that is. I don't know who they can legitimately get because the shortstop market, everybody locks up their guys long-term now. So it's going to be tough, but there's definitely improvements that could be made to the team that will make them very scary. And I think, J-Rod can carry them to the postseason without a doubt. Uh, Teoscar Hernandez is starting to heat up a little bit. I don't think he's nearly as bad as his numbers have shown to start the season. And I'm a huge Eugenio Suarez fan. I like Colton Wong. Ty France, obviously, you guys know, is a stud. And Big Dumper keeps doing his Cal Raleigh stuff. So, like, the offense is good. The pitching, Luis Castillo is amazing. He's awesome. George Kirby, I'm a big fan. I th- he pitched better today, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah was- like, mm-hmm. I, I think he's good. They prob- They just need that, like, one impact player I think away and then all of a sudden you could start to be like oh Mariners can make some noise here no doubt yeah I think that guy might just be sitting down in Anaheim right now it's funny Mark you did just (laughs) name the three positions you named uh shortstop left field and DH would just so happen to be the three most contentious positions if you ask any Mariner fan uh yeah I mean 
it's it, it it sets off some dynamite, which it, which I just got a I got a big chuckle out of. Yeah, I don't I don't know where we, we sit on JP. He'll he'll be a subject here eventually uh, on the on this podcast uh, a little more in depth as the season goes along. We're just uh, we're just waiting to see something, which might might not ever happen. Yeah, and that's I think the awkward scenario some teams get in is how long do we wait, right? Like what? How much? How much leeway do we give this guy before we decide? We need to improve, and I think when you look at teams that have been successful, one of the reasons why is there's no waiting. We're going for it now. Like we have, we have a time period. We have, we have this little window, and I think the Mariners' window is a little bit bigger because they have some of their younger players locked up for a, a decent amount of time. But you gotta, you gotta jump in that window. Like the Cubs were lucky enough to get it in 2016 after they saw how well they did in 2015. But then you can see how quickly it can go away. Like who would have thought that that core would have only made one World Series, right? Like, you, you talk about Javi Baez, Anthony Rizzo, Chris Bryant, all those guys together. And to only win one or make it to one, like, that sounded crazy if you said that back in 2016. But when you got the opportunity to jump on it, I think the Mariners should do their best to jump on it. Maybe, maybe a guy like Willie Adamez? I, but that depends how good the Brewers are, too. Because they're also in a weird scenario of we could go out and get somebody and, and be a lot better as well. It's funny. We've talked about him. We've talked about, could they go out and trade for Willie Adamas? I guess the problem is they extended JP Crawford last year. Now it's not like yeah. the world's worst contract to get out of. And if they had to move him to second base, they could do it. But yeah, Adamas is absolutely a guy where like if the Mariners wanted to pull the trigger on that and give up some prospects for him. Sign me up. Yeah. And the Mariners have some good prospects too, like coming up the pipeline as well. So they're, they're definitely in a good spot. Are Mariners fans feeling down? Like I know we, we talked about earlier about like the overreactions, but like realistically, are you guys like has has your opinion changed or wavered at all? Not at Ours all. Like, not I, I, depends on good, who you good, ask. Good, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some people on Twitter, as I'm sure you know, in the Mets world, oh yeah, it gets real ugly real fast. So some people are already freaking out. But through ten games, I think we're okay. Yeah, no. I mean, the, the team is built to be successful, and I I still think they've got like good enough guts and good enough bones to be like a playoff team. And like I said at the beginning, like you make the playoffs, you get hot. Who knows? Like, they, they have the pieces to make a run. Both these teams, Mariners and the Mets, they're going to be a blast to watch all season going forward. They're certainly two playoff contenders in their respective leagues. And, Mark, we've really enjoyed getting to sit down and kind of chop it up chop it up with you about it a little bit. We loved hearing about your channel. We love just talking baseball with people. So, really, we appreciate all the time, and hopefully we can do it again soon. Yeah, no, guys, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Sorry about the uh... – about hour late start here on my side, but I'm glad we could get on here, uh, you know, do the podcast. And um, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It's been a blast. Really enjoyed that conversation with Giraffe Neck Mark. It was awesome to get a national perspective on the Mariners, talk some broader baseball topics as well. We really appreciate him taking the time. All right, TJ, let's unveil a new segment here. Let's take everybody down on the farm. So each week, we're each going to highlight one Mariners minor league player that's really been shining over that week of their games. We're going to talk about it here on the show because we think it's important to follow the minor league guys as well because eventually they're going to play a factor into what the big league club does. So I'll kick it to you first. Through the first week of minor league games, who's been standing out to you? Gonna look right at the top and Harry Ford. He's you know he's only played a couple of games so far, but dog, he's got an 11 11 OPS, so we can't complain about that. He's four for nine early. He's already showing off his wheels, his athleticism. He's got a triple. He's driven in three runs. 
The most shocking thing, Lyle, I don't know if this is going to cause a demotion in his prospect status. He hasn't walked yet. I'm a little concerned. For those who don't know, Harry Ford has an elite walk rate. I mean, last year, he put up over a 400 on base percentage. The guy gets on base. So, yeah, maybe maybe we should start sweating a little bit here that through two games, he hasn't recorded a base on balls. But, no, in, in all seriousness, we think Harry Ford has a chance to have a really big year, and he's off to a hot start through just a couple of games. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. He's... Again, not in a great hitting environment up there in Everett, which you worry about in uh, here in high A. But I think he's uh, he's good enough to continue going on there and facing higher level pitching. I, we we do have the utmost confidence in Harry that he will continue to ascend up the prospect rankings this year. And hey, he's uh, he's also you know great flying the Millennium Falcon and uh, you know recovering ancient relics as well. If anybody's following our Twitter account, which you should be, by the way, at Marine Layer Pod, whenever we talk about Harry Ford, we're making Han Solo references. We're making Indiana Jones references like all the time because it's too easy not to. And for those who don't know, his full name is Harrison. So Harrison Ford. I might have to try to get up to Everett this year at some point to catch a game just to go see him because I would put some money if I was a betting man on him spending part of this year in Arkansas if everything goes right, maybe toward the tail end of the year. So while he's here in the state and just up the road in Everett, I feel like it would be cool to go see him. Maybe I can get some content out of it too for the show. So it's pretty cool to see him off to a good start. We think he's going to have a big year. All right. On my end, we're kind of hitting all the Mariners blue chip guys here in the first week, which they perform well, so they deserve it. We'll touch on other guys, not just the blue chip guys, by the way, through the year if they're playing well, but through the first week, it's the headliners. Emerson Hancock. He makes his first start of the year in double-A Arkansas. He was dealing in that first outing. Five innings, three hits, no runs, one walk, seven strikeouts. Fastball was sitting in the mid-90s, which is not the 98 to 99 miles an hour he was hitting in his peak, in his prime, before he had the, or I should say, before he had the injuries, I guess. Regardless, the fact that it's only his first start, he's healthy, and he looked this sharp. You got to be excited about it. Yeah, and his fastball movement was was really good. He got six of his seven strikeouts in his outing on his fastball, and he got twelve swings and misses, which is good. I mean, this was a guy who's supposed to come out of Georgia with premier, nearly MLB ready stuff that, through injuries and deterioration, has not really showed as much in the minor leagues, but is off to a really good start, and we're hoping to see Emerson have a full, healthy season. I think that's really all we can ask for. It's not for Emerson to make the big leagues this year. It's for him to pitch a full season, because I really think that's the most important thing in his development. Bryce Miller's almost definitely ahead of Emerson on the depth chart at this point, just from the way Miller's performed, his prospect status, everything. But Emerson Hancock, when he was drafted, had the ceiling that was maybe highest of all the big three arms between him, between George Kirby, between Logan Gilbert, which is a pretty hefty statement looking at what Gilbert and Kirby have done so far. We'll see what Emerson's ceiling now is long-term, but man, if he can stay healthy and he can have a full season in the minors where he's really, really got his A game, all of a sudden people might jump back on the Emerson Hancock train. And I wouldn't worry about his fastball too much in his first start, especially because, again, it's his first start. Like, give him time as he gets into June. There's a chance it could ramp up a few ticks. So, through a start, 
got to love what you see out of Emerson Hancock, and we can only hope it continues. You only draft a guy sixth overall if he has that kind of upside. So, I don't know. I mean, you remember Callis mentioned it a little bit. We Even in his junior season in 2020, didn't really see that same stuff that made him so special as a sophomore, and he was you know projected to almost go number one overall, and then fell a little bit to the Mariners in the sixth pick. So this could not this could be like a, a thing that has dragged on for now a couple of years now with Emerson Hancock, but yeah, we're we're still uh, we're looking for him to to have a really good season and and hey maybe you get up to ninety six ninety seven uh, as the summer months go along here. All right, Lyle, let's now take a look around baseball with our MLB wraparound. All right, first up on our MLB wraparound, Lyle, O'Neal Cruz will miss four months with a broken fibula. He slid into home plate this weekend and broke it uh, while the Pirates were playing the White Sox. Just heartbreaking. I was really excited to get a full season of stat cast readings on O'Neal Cruz. The dude is the extreme everywhere he plays on the diamond, and now he's going to miss four months. You hate to see it happen. and. To just kind of clear the air, I'm not really putting the blame on Sebi Zavala either. It wasn't a dirty play. He did block a good portion of the plate, but there was no ill intention behind it, although a fight did break out between the White Sox and the Pirates after the result. You just feel for O'Neal Cruz. The guy has the such a high ceiling. He's so much fun. A six seven shortstop who's got big pop, a huge arm. It felt like he had a chance to break out this year, and now he's going to lose almost a full season of time. Here are some records that O'Neill Cruz already owns, uh, his big league career not even two full seasons complete. He has the hardest hit baseball in StatCast history at 122.8 miles an hour. He has the hardest thrown assist in Pirates history at 96.5 miles an hour across the diamond at shortstop. He also, Lyle, has a sprint speed of 31 and has peaked at 31 and a half feet per second, which is beyond elite. Elite is 30 feet per second. He's above that. And that's standing at 6'7", playing shortstop. Uh, he is, again, an extreme in every asset of the game. And I'm really going to miss seeing some highlights pop up of him uh, as the season goes along. And the Pirates have gotten off to an okay start, too. We don't really expect it to sustain, but... Without O'Neill Cruz, it may be tough to kind of tread water here. It's too bad. He, he's just so different. I mean, we talk about things we're not used to seeing in baseball these days. We talk about Shohei Otani all the time, and I'm not quite putting O'Neill Cruz in that category or anything, but just a shortstop that's 6'7 and can do all the things that he does and is as good of an athlete as he is. It's so much fun to watch. So you'll hope he gets back in maybe August or September and can still salvage his season a little bit. But yeah, just all around, you hate to see an injury like that. Okay, second storyline here, and it's probably the headline of baseball right now. Tampa Bay Rays, they're undefeated. They enter this week 9-0 and at the time of recording. They're the first team to start 8-0 and since the 2003 Royals. I mean, they are motoring right now. Yeah, they have been really, really impressive to watch. I have trivia for you, Lyle. You ready? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Warm yourself up. All okay. right. So the Tampa Bay Rays, uh, I believe, as, as of recording this podcast, are now 11-0 and to start this season. 
They won their first nine games by four or more runs. Can you name the team uh, that holds that that holds the record to start a season of most games in a row winning by four or more runs? Is it the O one Mariners? No, <laughs> you're not going to guess this. I promise. I could give you a hundred guesses and you'll not guess it. All right. Final guess. The 1914 Yankees. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. Um, we're going to have to go back to 1884. The St. Louis Maroons of the Union Association did it 13 games in a row. So there That's you go. Ridiculous. I mean, they're doing everything right now. Like you look up and down their roster. The entire team is tearing the cover off the ball. Outside of the catcher position with Christian Betancourt and Francisco Mejia, every starting position player is OPSing over 800. I mean, 11 of the 14 players that have recorded a plate appearance so far have an OPS over 800. And meanwhile, you could argue that rotation, especially with the way they've come out of the gate, is the best in baseball. I mean, you look at it, McClanahan, Springs, Rasmussen, they're going to get Tyler Glass now back. That is a deadly team. Yeah, their top four starters first two times through uh, as the numbers I have. So I, I got it through through yesterday for their their tenth win in a row. You know, their top four starters when it had a combined one one uh, one one zero ERA, fifty eight strikeouts, ten walks, and forty nine innings. And then on Monday yesterday, <laughs> their bullpen uh, combines for a three hit shutout. Five different guys combined for a three hit shutout. I mean. The depth is showing there. It's really impressive. They have played a bit of a cupcake schedule to start. They got the Tigers, Nationals, Athletics, and now the Red Sox. Four, you could argue, last place teams, all of them. So you could you could put that little tiny asterisk next it, but next to it. But it is hard to win every day in Major League Baseball, and they have now done it eleven times in a row. How long can it keep going? Are they going for twenty? Yeah, should they break the money ball streak right off the bat? That would be pretty funny. I mean, they're kind of a money ball team themselves. I mean, a little bit less so than the A's. They extended Wander. They've extended some players. But, you know, it's not like they're breaking the bank or anything. They're doing a lot well. And we'll see how long this ride continues for the Rays in that really loaded American League East division. Every game they win now here at the beginning could really help them out when they're we're battling the Yankees and the Blue Jays and the Orioles over the course of the season. Our final storyline of the week here in the MLB wraparound. How about 20-year-old Jordan Walker, the number one prospect in the Cardinal system? He's off to a really white-hot start. As of yesterday, through the games yesterday, he started his major league career on a 10-game hitting streak, joining the likes of Eddie Murphy and Ted Williams in that... Um, uh, he actually... No, he sorry, he passed Ted Williams... When Ted Williams uh, in the 1939 Boston Red Sox for guys age 20 or younger uh, hit streak to start the season. That's a, that's a pretty good list of guys. So he is two away from the record as of this recording. When he reached nine games, it was the longest streak by a player 20 years old or younger since Ted Williams. Like you just mentioned, he, he's in the categories of guys like Ted Williams. It's the longest streak since 1939 by a player 20 years old or younger. Guy is tearing the cover off the ball. And it's funny, he's not a great defender, 
He wasn't ever really projected to be. He's also playing a lot more outfield now. Originally, he was more of a corner infield prospect, but there's not exactly room at either of those positions in St. Louis, considering there's two guys playing those spots who may end up in the Baseball Hall of Fame one day and are still in their primes and reigning MVP and Paul Goldschmidt and then defensive savant, and I should really say offensive savant as well, and Nolan Arenado. So they had to move him somewhere else if they wanted to get him playing time. But the bat is doing all the talking right now, and he looks every bit the part to help to, to help a Cardinals team that is really, really lethal. The longest streak overall, regardless of age to start a season, is David Dahl. He had a 17-game hit streak back in 2016. I just wanted to throw this at you, Lyle, because I, like, I, I haven't watched a whole bunch of Jordan Walker in the minors. Is it me, or does his swing not look exactly like me and Desmond? Like, exactly like it. I guess I hadn't thought about it. I feel like he's got, I mean, he's got way more pop than Ian Desmond, but the swing itself, maybe yeah. there's a little bit of resemblance. The stance and the swing look very similar. After we're done recording, your homework is to go watch that. Cause I mean, that's instantly what I thought of when I saw him. I'm like, wow, it looks, looks exactly like, regardless, a 20-year-old doing this in today's MLB with all these just fireballers on the mound is, is mighty, mighty impressive. Much more than what I was doing when I was 20. So shout out to you, Jordan Walker. Last thing here, this rookie of the year race in the National League might be as tight as it was in the AL last year. I mean, I know Julio ended up running away with it, but just in terms of the rookie talent that were fighting for the award, 2023, it looks like the NL might have that class. You've got Jordan Walker, Corbin Carroll, James Altman, who's lighting the world on fire for the Dodgers right now, and Kodai Senga. That's a really good rookie class in the National League. Hey, don't let's not discount the race in the National League last year with the two teammates, Strider and Harris. I mean, that was probably closer than the American League race, was it not? Yeah, I guess the race was closer, but I just think of like the depth of players in the AL between Julio, right. Adley, Bobby Witt, Jeremy Pena. I might uh, Kirby. I'm forgetting somebody too, but yeah, it was it was a really really good class of rookies last year. So. I think the NL's taking its turn here. Okay. Wrapping up our MLB wraparound. And now moving forward to our second edition of our Russell Wilson Umpire of the Week. One more time, if you missed it last week, to qualify for this prestigious award here on the podcast, you have to do one of three things. You have to either miserably fail to see over the middle, refuse to let a play develop, or just be downright insufferable. And we have a new winner this week, TJ. You want to you wanna throw it on us here? Who's taking home the award? Congratulations to John Libka behind the plate for yesterday, so Monday's Phillies-Marlins game, where he threw out Nick Castellanos in the seventh inning when Castellanos struck out on a pitch on the inside corner, didn't like the call, and proceeded to like draw a tiny little line in the dirt, maybe suggesting where the pitch was. I, I couldn't tell because he barely moved his bat at all. And John Lipka proceeds, by the way, in a double-digit run game to toss Nick, Nick Castellanos out of the baseball game just because. So congratulations to you, John Lipka, for taking home our second Russell Wilson umpire of the week. Did Nick Castellanos even draw a line with the knob of his bat? I honestly thought he just kind of slammed the knob of his bat ever so gently into the dirt, and that was it. And then he got tossed. I mean, maybe that's what Libka thought, is that he drew a line with his bat. I thought it was less than that. Regardless, 
I don't say this about a lot of people just because I try to let people live their lives in general, but I'm going to say it here about umpires. They need to grow thicker skin. Like you're getting (laughs) offended about a guy pushing the knob of his bat into the dirt. Come on. So this qualifies as what they they're downright insufferable and they didn't let a play develop. Is, is that what qualifies for this award this week? Uh, didn't let a play develop. I mean, did Castellanos even say anything? I don't think so. I, I, I was try I was staring at the video last night, trying to see if he set open his mouth. I could not see anything to say he opened his mouth and it was quick too. Like it, it took five seconds for him to get thrown out. Something like that. It, I mean, I mean, it, it's not like he walked back to the dugout. There was more chirping going back and forth, and then he got tossed. So it was just a quick hook. Be, you know why? Because John Libka, the home plate umpire, knows all these Philly fans that paid money to drive over to the game, park their car, get to the stadium, take time out of their day to go watch baseball. It wasn't to go watch a power threat like Nick Castellanos for the reigning National League champions. It was to see a guy behind home plate ringing up one of their good players. That's what they're there to see. It was to see a guy get ejected from the game. You know what's the funniest part of that? That is the only missed strike call, or sorry, the only missed, the only strike he called outside of the strike zone the entire game. The only one. Oh, so he actually had a good scorecard. I wouldn't say it was good. Um, He was 93% overall accuracy, which is fine. Uh He did miss, he was, his, his worst, uh, his problem was that he was only 89% and called ball accuracy. So that's where there might be a little more beef mm-hmm. from the opposing pitchers, but not hitters, because that's the first one that directly affected a hitter all game. Umpires are just unbelievable. Like these guys really think they're a part of the show. They really do. Right. You know, there was someone in the stands who bought a jersey with John Lipka's name on the back because that's who they wanted to see. They never fail to amaze, don't they? They really don't. Okay, let's close out the show with Speak Your Mind. Speak your mind, Spock. That would be unwise. What is necessary is never unwise. All right, Lyle, what is on your mind today? Okay, I have one quick one and then one longer one. I wanted to give a little bit of a shout out to the Kraken because in their second season, they just clinched a, clinched a postseason spot, which is awesome. I was there this past week to go see the clinch against the Coyotes, which was cool. So that makes the Seahawks, the Mariners, and the Kraken all having clinched playoff spots within the same year, which is pretty awesome. So that was my little quick one. The second one, Okay, it it does relate to baseball this week, sort of, but it's more on Twitter. What the fuck is going on with Evan Gaddis? This guy just out of nowhere, just out of nowhere over the last couple of days, just started going on a tirade on Twitter, tweeting, responding to people. And so, so here were the two big things he was talking about. Number one. He's just openly talking about the cheating scandal, which everybody knows the Astros did at this point. But the fact he's going into details about things like, oh, well, we knew the trash can was getting banged more times when there were sliders or cutters coming versus 
You know, we knew exactly what CeCe was going to throw. We knew exactly what Kershaw was going to throw. Like, he is literally pinpointing the details of just how in-depth this cheating scandal got. And the one that put it over the line for me was the fact that he told some random commenter after saying, hey, Evan, I got to see you play left field in one of the 10 games you were out there in 2015. He goes, thanks. I was probably nervous and also on a performance-enhancing drug. Like, just right out to Twitter. (laughs) Right to Twitter. Just telling the whole world, yeah, I was taking PEDs. Now, he's not going to be in the Hall of Fame, so he probably doesn't really care at this point. But you don't see that every day. Do we think there's a slight chance he was just hacked? I don't know. You would like to believe that's the case, right? But we haven't seen anything so far saying, yeah, somebody got into my Twitter account. So I'm kind of thinking that it was actually him. And we're not going to mention what else he said on this podcast, but that probably wasn't the those things that Lyle mentioned probably wasn't even the worst thing that was tweeted out by him in that tirade. (laughs) Just to put that in perspective, it's just bizarre. You never you never see players that brutally open and honest on a social media platform, which which is why it makes you think he was hacked. But we haven't seen anything. I probably would have gone the rest of my life never thinking about Evan Gaddis again until he popped up on Twitter the other day. Like, he was just one of those guys where, like, he won a World Series. He had an okay career. He had some power. But you weren't going to sit around reminiscing on his glory days as a ball player. But, man, he drilled the he drilled his presence right into fans' heads real quick over the last couple days. Coming right out of the woodwork. Okay. My speak your mind. It's that time of year, Lyle, where this is where I honestly, instead of this is just being me talking, this is going to be flipping it over to you and asking you, what's in Adam Silver's playbook over this next month while these playoffs or NBA playoffs start up this week? The play-in games take place this week. The uh, the NBA playoffs uh, will take place over the next month or so. What is in Adam Silver's book? What what's in there? Could you could you could you open the curtain for us? Because I know you always think ahead of these things, and really, you're really good at reading his mind. There's been a couple of good ones already. I mean, you talk about the NFL script writing, and there was that whole couple week span where everybody was talking about how oh, the NFL has a script that players have to follow. I low key believe, but also not believe, but yeah, kind of believe that the NBA has a script of its own too. For things, for example, that have already happened, like the Mavericks trading for a superstar in Kyrie Irving, just destroying the locker room and missing the playoffs, like we talked about in one of our recent shows, Rudy Gobert getting into a fight with a teammate, and now he's (laughs) going to miss the play-in game, just so happening to play LeBron in the Lakers. Yeah. Coincidence. Mm -hmm. I mean... Yeah, uh, anyone want to check on like a, a, a Gobert bank account somewhere in Europe? an offshore bank account where there was a, a, a deposit from one a silver uh, to say, Hey, listen, LeBron and the Lakers are playing too good to get knocked out by the Timberwolves. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So yeah, we're going to, uh, we're going to have, let's cook something up and Oh, let's shout out Jaden McDaniels too. It, excellent. I mean, there might've been someone who came up behind him on the bench and said, Hey, listen, Jaden McDaniels before, 
we're going to need you to go punch concrete and break your hand and be out <laughs> and be out for the play in game. You too. We need we need to we need to siphon off the Timberwolves. He pulled a Devin Williams with that. Meanwhile, yeah, they had to enact Gobert's clause in his contract of, hey, we'll give you a two, three million dollar incentive to start a fight with your teammate, get suspended, <laughs> and then you'll just pick up a little extra few million dollars on the side for complying with our script. Yeah, I don't know what they've got for the rest of the playoffs here. I mean, like what fits the narrative? They'd probably want to get LeBron another title, which in all seriousness is two LeBron fans on this podcast. We would love to see, although that's not going to happen. But feel like for the NBA's sake, they love it. Meanwhile, I don't know, like maybe like a, do we feel like there's a crash course for Sixers Celtics somewhere in this playoffs in the Eastern conference, just because those two teams don't really love each other. I think so. I'm just, okay. I'm fascinated by the West because literally the Lakers will have to beat if they win their, uh, the Lakers would have to beat if they move on. So what the Lakers get, would get the Kings in the first round, I think. Mm-hmm. I believe, I yeah, right. I believe the Lakers, if they beat Minneapolis in the, they beat the, the, the T-Wolves in the play-in game, they would play the Kings, who have a great history in the playoffs against the Lakers. <clears throat> Think it back to 23 years ago. That nothing, nothing ever fishy about how many foul calls were there or free throws did the Lakers get in that game, in that, in that Western Conference final game? I mean, people lose count. It, it's, it's an enormous number. It's shaping up, you know what I'm saying. And then after that, you get either the uh, you get the Warriors or the I think it's the Warriors or the Suns. No, I don't. I don't have the bracket up, but it 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 just smells a little fishy that it's looking almost too easy for the Lakers to to coast into the Western Conference Finals. We'll have to see. And then who knows if they again like if they had to face what the Suns in the Western conference finals, or at some point in the postseason for that matter, do they play the Chris Paul storyline of he can't win a title? Do they force the Suns to lose? I don't know. I don't know. We're, yeah, we're that, gonna have ring, to that ring, that ring cloud will hang over Chris Paul's head forever. And he can't, if he can't, if they match up with the Lakers and can't beat the Lakers, there's an issue. You have KD. I mean, what are we doing here? KD, Booker, Aiton, and Chris Paul. Yeah, that that team should not be losing to the Lakers. I don't know. Uh, it's right be now, fun. right now, Lyle, we I do believe we have a second round Celtics Sixers matchup. The Celtics are two, and the Sixers are three. So that's where that's where I think if we're actually like tangible real life storylines, not WWE behind the scenes Adam Silver script storylines, that's probably the one you look at the most. I would agree. Yeah, it's hard to really get into the NBA regular season just because I feel like it can be predictable a lot of the time. But I'll certainly be watching this postseason, and you know some theatrics are going to occur. So I'll be ready for it. I'm going to be ready for it. Okay, I think that just about wraps up this edition of the Marine Layer Podcast. You guys know what to do by now. If you want to listen to the full podcast, you can find it on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google. Full video form of the podcast will be on YouTube and on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube shorts at Marine Layer Pod. Meant to mention it at the start of the show, but also tomorrow night, or rather tonight with this being Wednesday that the show is going to come out. So Wednesday night, 
We're going to be on YouTube with the Couch GM live on his YouTube channel doing a live Q&A. So if you guys have any Mariners questions so far through the start of the year, hop on with us and ask us some questions because we're going to be live. We've gotten to know him a little bit over the last few weeks, and we wanted to do some content together. So we'll be doing that again Wednesday night, 7 p.m. over on the YouTube channel of the Couch GM. So go check that out. We're looking forward to it. For TJ Matthewson, this has been Lyle Goldstein. As always, we thank you guys for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week.